0: Good morning again. Unfortunately, it seems that that every day I'm, I can't speak for you, but I'm freshly confronted by evidence that we live in a a broken world, in a world that is struggling. And, And let me tell you particularly what stood out to me. I've noticed that recently, whether I'm watching a, a video on YouTube, or perhaps I, I pull up a, a podcast to listen to, or even just watching on television, I've noticed a lot more ads for mental health services. YouTube used to have ads, you know, buy, get earbuds, get protein drinks, but recently it's been more and more common mental health services. And the reason for that is people are struggling. People are in need of hope. I've also seen and experienced, and probably you, many frustrations and debates among people that reveal our need for security. Particularly, this relates to how people are handling, dealing with things related to COVID and the coronavirus. And it seems that that for many people, they just want a new normal, things to be consistent in a time where policies, procedures, expectations change frequently. People want consistency, security. And when we have these struggles between we want security, consistency in our life, And we need hope. We have options. There are many different options that you can turn to to try to meet those needs in your life. Some people embrace the idea of political change. You know, if the people I like were in control, then my life would be secure. Then I would have hope. So I just need the people I like to be in power, and then things will be good. Some perhaps turn to money. You know, if I had another job, if I made a little bit more money, then my situation could be secure, and then I could start thinking about what's coming up in the future. Some may think, well, I just need something new in my life, a new passion that will give me hope, give me something to strive for. And once I have that, then I'll be at a secure place. Some may try to reject all of that, say, you know, I don't need anything else. I'm good, just me. I need to work harder, be, be more in tune with myself, my own wisdom and abilities, and then I can find that security. I need to forget about the noise, just focus on myself. Some, I think, in the worst case, they look at a world where there's a lack of security and hope and they perhaps lose all hope and say, I'm just not going to find hope in this world. But what if, what if, friends, there was a better hope for us to trust in? What if there was a better source of security, hope, and promise that we could cling to? Our passage today from the book of Hebrews are going to tell us about a better promise, a better promise of hope. That can give us lasting security. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 13 through 20. Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. There's a blue Bible. seat back in front of you you can use. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one with you when you leave. We'll also have the words up on the screen. But once you are there in Hebrews chapter 6, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. And then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The author of Hebrews writes this to Hebrew people in verse 13. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, quoting the Old Testament, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Verse 16. For when people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray and we'll talk about this text. Lord, we look around us and we see a world, a world desperate for hope, desperate for security. God, remind us afresh from your word that, that hope and security we long for can only be found in you. God, I pray that as we read your truth today, you would remind us of faithful, patient examples that we can imitate of those who waited on and relied on you. God, thank you for your promise, your oath, your guarantee of an eternal future that we can trust in. Oh God, lead us to hold on, to cling to the anchor for the soul that you provide through your Son, Jesus Christ. May he be our focus today. May he increase, may I decrease, so that we can see him clearly. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we go through the book, it's important for us to remind ourselves about what exactly we're looking at. This is the letter to Hebrews. So it's an author. We're not quite sure who the person is, but he's writing to Jewish background believers, people who used to practice Judaism but now they've become Christians. Well, the problem is these people he's writing to seem to be wrestling with the temptation to go back to their old way of life. And the author is telling them, no, Jesus is better. There are better things staying with Jesus than going back to what you used to know. We're in a part of the letter where he's been very direct with them. A couple weeks ago we talked about he critiqued them for their lack of maturity. He said they didn't even know the basics. And last week he gave a very harsh warning about the danger of falling away. And that if they did that, it would prove that they didn't know God. But if you remember last week, he ended with a message of hope in that he looked at them and the most of the people he was writing to, he saw their love for other believers in Christ. And he wanted them to continue practicing that love. You can look in your Bibles or look on the screen just before the passage we read, the two verses before, Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and so now the author is going to transition he's been talking directly to them he was writing about something else talking to them and now he's going back to what he was talking about before talking about Jesus as our high priest our representative before God, and how Jesus fulfills God's promises for his people. And speaking of those promises, the author begins by giving us a patient example for us to imitate. We have the blanks for front of you. That's the first blanks. A patient example to imitate. He's talking about God's promises, and here's a patient example that we can imitate and follow so that we can receive God's promises as well. Particularly, he's looking at Abraham, the ancestor of the Hebrew people. He is an example of one who inherited the promises of God. Let me read verses 13 through 15 again. He just said, Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, that's verse 12, and then he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself. God said, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. Particularly here, the author speaking to the fact that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they did not have children for a long, long time until they were very old. And God promised them that they would have a child between the two of them, and it did happen. He finally gave them a son named Isaac. But then one day, God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son up of this mountain and kill him, offer him as a sacrifice. Abraham obeyed God. He took his son. He went up on the mountain, tied him up, was about to kill him, and then God stopped him. God stopped and said, no, Abraham, don't do that. Instead, here is a ram that was stuck in a bush. Use that as a substitute sacrifice. And after that happens, this is what God says. This is from the book of Genesis the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this, you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. It's this passage, this these verses from Genesis 22 that our author is quoting here in our text. He's not quoting directly. He's kind of combining a couple of these things. In this passage, God says, by myself I have sworn, I will surely bless you. I will multiply your offspring. God promised blessing and descendants to his faithful follower, Abraham. And as our author points out, look at those words. God says, by myself. He had no one greater that he could appeal to So he swears by himself that he will do this. Abraham, we're told, believed God. He waited, he endured 25 years from after God first promised he would have a son until it actually happened. And while Abraham didn't live to quite see his descendants multiplied, it did eventually happen. The author is writing to the Hebrew people, Abraham's descendants. He's saying, you can see that Abraham's promise came true. God promised and it happened. Scholar Al Mohler says, Abraham believed the promise because God was the promiser. He trusted God and believed what he said. And our author's point is that we should imitate Abraham's faithful patience. We should trust in God's promises. Be faithful to him as Abraham was. And let me be clear, if you want to read about Abraham in Genesis, you'll find that he is not a perfect person. He makes plenty of mistakes, but he was faithful in his commitment to God. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author will illustrate this by talking about what Abraham did when God first called him. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And Abraham went out, he left his home, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, He lived in tents with his son Isaac and then his grandson Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. He followed God, trusted him to provide. When we're thinking about God's purposes, he is a faithful example for us to imitate. Look friends, we can be honest with ourselves. We have lived through a couple years of chaos in the world around us and for many of us also chaos in our own personal lives. And when these hardships of life come up, it can make us think, you know, is God actually mean what he says? Can I actually trust these promises he's given in his word? Abraham provides to us an example of hope, of trust, and obedience. God told him he would have a son, and it didn't happen until 25 years later. And I know I'm not very old, but I mean, 25 years ago, that would have been a long time to wait for something. And even when God seemed to delay, Abraham still trusted. God is honored. He is glorified when his people trust his promises and wait for him. And look, we can be honest with one another. I know it's very difficult to sometimes trust what God has said. It can be a struggle when we see, I know God has said this thing and he's going to be with me through this trial, but it really doesn't feel like he is right now. And so let me encourage you, if you're wrestling, if you're struggling with something, if there's, I know God has said this, but I'm not quite sure if it's true or how it works out in my life, then please talk to somebody about that. Don't just keep that in yourself of, I, I'm not sure if God actually means what he says here. I don't know about that. Don't, don't keep that to yourself. Share that with somebody else. Somebody else in this church, somebody else who's a faithful follower of God. If you share your concern, your doubt, your fear with someone who is a true believer Someone who cares about Jesus, they won't criticize you, or they shouldn't. They shouldn't look down on you. They should see that as an opportunity to encourage you. My prayer would be that if you were honest with someone, they would say, thank you so much for sharing with me about that. Let's look at the Bible, and let's talk about how God is faithful to do that for you. For believers in Christ, we are in this race of life together. It's not a competition between us. It's a team marathon. We all have to finish together. We're called to press on together. As the apostle Paul writes, he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He presses on in following God, giving us a faithful example just as Abraham is an example to imitate. And there's more good news here because God knows us. He understands our nature and character. He knows that we would really struggle to believe that he'll actually do what he says. That we would struggle to believe that there's actually an eternity after this life. He knew that we would struggle to believe that. So he gives us a gift. And the gift he gives us is a guaranteed promise to trust. The so next section we're going to talk about a guaranteed promise or a guaranteed oath for us to trust in. God guarantees his promises of hope for the future. He guarantees it based on his own trustworthy character. Let's read verses 16 through 18 again. Verse 16 says, When people swear by by something greater than themselves, in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. An oath is the final word. Verse 17 says, So when God desired, he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his character and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we then who have fled for refuge, we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Here the author draws our mind to the illustration of a legal oath or promise. In the author's day, we're talking about 2,000 years ago, oaths were a lot more common than they are now. They were used in many legal and official dealings. Often you didn't sign a physical contract, you gave your oath or promise, and that was considered binding. And that's not super foreign to us because we do the same thing today in our courtrooms. You know, Raise your right hand, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We're doing the same thing. And the author's point is that when people are swearing, when they're giving an oath, they're typically swearing by someone or something that is greater than themselves. So their oath is a binding confirmation of what they are saying that is intended to end all disputes and arguments. Now that idea of swearing on something else, it's a little less common today. It's more, do you swear, to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, and normally we stop there. But, uh, Generations previous, they had things, you know, so help me God. But even today, when someone's sworn into office, like the President of the United States, they often put their hand on a Bible. They're swearing on that. The Bible's the authority. They're swearing in in that. Or by whatever God you worshiped at this time, you would swear by. The author's point that he's making is, generally speaking, when someone makes an oath, it's supposed to be binding and unbreakable. But he points out something interesting here. When God swore an oath and a promise, he's God. So he doesn't have someone else to appeal to, saying, this person will hold me to my oath. No, he's God. He has to swear by himself. If God was in a courtroom giving this oath, he couldn't say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. He couldn't say that. He would have to say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me me. That, that's what God has to do because he... Is perfect. He is God. He didn't have to give an oath, a guarantee, a promise to us, but he did. In his great grace, he shows, demonstrates, he makes clear to us his character. He wanted to do this. He desired, he determined that he would guarantee, confirm his promises to us in a way that is unchangeable. Your Bible might have the translation, immutable. It just means unchangeable, won't be changed, no matter what God it. Now you may look at this fact that he's talking about promises, and he was just talking about Abraham, and you may say, "Well, what does that have to do with us, Pastor John? He's writing to Hebrew people, writing to Abraham, That doesn't have anything to do with us. Oh, but it does, because this oath to Abraham is also about us. Paul will write in the book of Galatians that if you are Christ, if you belong to him, if you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. Through Christ, we have the joy of being a part of God's people. We have the joy of receiving his promises. And it's sure, it's guaranteed. In verse 18, the author says it's based on two unchangeable things. It's based on God's purpose, his character, and his oath and promise. And God does not lie, so we can believe him. Our text Phrases it that, which it is impossible for God to lie. The book of Numbers puts it this way. It says, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? If it was possible for God to lie, if it was possible for God to not say the truth, then he wouldn't be perfect. He wouldn't be God. And so if he has said it, we can trust that he will fulfill his purposes. We can take him at his word. God's not like us. Regular people, we lie, we cheat, we deceive. Even sometimes if we have the best of intentions making a promise, maybe it just doesn't happen. Say, oh, I promise I'll be at your party. And then maybe we have car trouble at the way. Even if we have the best intentions, we can't follow through. But God's not like that. The book of Proverbs says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. He is reliable. He is honest. He is a person of character. Now I can say all that, and you might say, Pastor, that, that sounds a little too fantastical to believe to me. You're asking me to believe that there's someone perfect who what says all the time he does? I'm not sure if that's true. And if you're not sure if that's true, well, then I'd encourage you to get to know God. Get to know this person. Find out for yourself. You can ask him, say, God, help me to know you. Help me to learn about you and understand you more. You can learn about him more by spending time with him. One way you do that is by spending time in his word, read this book, and spend time in prayer. That's how a conversation with God works. It's not like face-to-face over a coffee table, but you read God's word, that's him speaking to you, and you pray, that's you talking to God. Say, God, help me to know more about you. Then open this book, and you'll see God revealing himself, what he is like to you. You don't have to take my word for it. You can check it out yourself. But let me tell you what you will find. If you take time to talk to God, you take time to hear from him, what you will find is that God's promises are always sure and guaranteed. And in this case, talking about eternity with him, it's doubly sure because he swears he will do it. If we know God, then we can trust him. We see that he is reliable. Let me give you an example of someone who knew God and knew that he was trustworthy. And it was an example we just talked about, that man Abraham. Remember the story I told you where Abraham had a son and God told him to take his son up on the mountain and sacrifice him? We may think to ourselves, why in the world would Abraham do that? What on earth was he thinking? Was he thinking that, did he know God would stop him? Was he thinking that maybe God was joking? Was he trying to to cheat God in some way? Well, I have good news. We don't have to wonder what Abraham was thinking because the book of Hebrews will tell us exactly what Abraham was thinking. It tells us in chapter 11, verse 19, that he, Abraham, he considered, he thought, that God was able even to raise him, to raise his son from the dead. Abraham took his son up the mountain, expecting that he would have to kill his son, but he knew God promised that he would give me descendants. So I guess God wants me to do this, and then he'll bring my son back to life. Now, let me be clear. I'm not recommending taking your children up on the mountain and killing them, not in any way, shape, or form. This is God directly speaking to Abraham. But he had a promise from God that he would give him this blessing. And so when God gives promises to us, we can rely on that as well. As the text says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. His son was to die, and God provided a substitute. Why did Abraham think that? Why did Abraham think God's going to raise my son from the dead? He thought that because he knew God. He knew God's character, and he trusted, this is a really weird thing that God's asking me to do, but I'm going to trust that God knows what he's doing and that he will provide for me and for my son. If we spend time with God like that, we can trust his guaranteed promises. And what that means for us, as our text tells us, is that is how we should respond to this. This should encourage us. As verse 18 says, we will have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. This is that that second part of the blank there I talked about, God's guaranteed promise to trust. We can trust, we can rely, we can have encouragement to believe what God has said. We can take hold of God's promises and not let them go. They can bring us encouragement, comfort, consolation. They can give us confidence as we follow God. Later in the book of Hebrews, the author will say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, Why do we hold fast to what we believe? Because he who promised is faithful. And the more we know God, the more we understand him, the more I've spent time with God, I know he is faithful, the more we'll be able to hold on to that confidence that we have in him. And we need this because on our own, our sin, our rebellion against God, if we just try it on ourselves, that puts us in danger of experiencing God's just his deserved wrath and judgment but to use the words from our text if we flee to refuge in Jesus Christ if we flee to Jesus be our refuge save us oh then we find grace and mercy and that grace and mercy leads to eternal joy with God this is the main promise we're talking about here this is what God's promises he fulfills this promise through Jesus Christ of bringing us into eternity with him. His promises are unchangeable realities. If we want another example to imitate, think about Jesus. Jesus knew and believed this. There you see uh, Hebrews 12 verse 2 calls us to look to Jesus. He's the founder, perfecter of our faith. What did he do? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now, He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew God has promised that he will raise me from the dead, bring me to be with him. Jesus knew that, and that's what his mind was on as he endured the cross and the struggles of life. And now he's there. He's seen those promises fulfilled. And to us now, he is a refuge. He is the one we can turn to when we are in need. One scholar, uh, F.F. Bruce, said we are refugees from the sinking ship of this present world order. The ship is going down so soon to disappear. Our hope is fixed then on the eternal order where the promises of God are made good to his people. What we see around us is sinking. So we look ahead to Christ's return and to God's promises fulfilled. And it's only by forsaking all other places of refuge, turning away from any other harbor that looks safe, that we find rest in him. And I thought that was a good quote, because speaking of safe harbors, the very next thing our author tells us to do is to hold on to the anchor. Hold on to the anchor. Because of God's oath and promise that God is guaranteed, I am going to do this, I will bring you to be with me, Our salvation through Jesus is secure. He is our high priest, our representative, and he has secured our place with God. It is a hope that can be trusted. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. I need us to, to take a step back and think about, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, where we've gone in these last few sermons. This whole section has been about the great danger that we face. And that's the danger of drifting away from God, thinking we belong to him, but moving away from him. That's the great danger. And then here at the very end of this part, God provides us with the solution to that problem. If our problem is we drift away from God, then our solution is we need an anchor. We need something to hold us in place, to hold us to God. And that anchor, that hope is in Jesus Christ. It's a call for us to trust God, to rely on his son, Jesus. He is our stable, secure, sure, steadfast, reliable, strong, and trustworthy anchor. If we didn't have him, well, then we'd be pushed around and pushed away by all the storms of life. If we didn't have this anchor, we would just drift back the way that we came. The fact that God keeps his promises to us, we remember, wait, God keeps his promises. He's trustworthy. He has given me Jesus and this hope of eternity. That provides that better promise, that better basis for security and stability that we want in life we believe that, then we can have peace in our life, true, lasting peace. Now, just knowing that doesn't mean that life will be easy. It's not, oh, okay, I believe Jesus is my anchor, and then I don't have problems anymore. Like how Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it, he said, this will not prevent you being tossed about. For even a ship that's tied up with an anchor, it may rock a good deal. The passengers may still get very seasick but that ship will not be driven away from its moorings, from its anchor. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that your life is easy. That doesn't mean it's perfect. In fact, your life will probably be a little more difficult. You will be pushed and pulled, but if you have Jesus as your anchor, you will not be lost at sea. As I've already talked about, the past few years have demonstrated just how unstable life can be. And we may look for many different sources of security. If I buy a a new uh, camera on my door, then I'll definitely be secure in life. If I have this or that, if this thing changes, if this person I like does this, then I'll be secure. As one scholar, Michael Kruger, put it, when the storms come, instead of looking around or looking inward, we need to look forward to the day we will be with Christ. Christ. So let me ask you, are you looking for stability and security in something other than Jesus? I'm not trying to be mean or or cruel, but let me tell you, that's not going to end well if that's what you do. Whatever it is that you're looking for, maybe it's your job. You say, well, I have this job that's really great, and as long as I stay in that, then I can provide security for myself or for my family and loved ones. Friends, just, just turn the clock back in your mind just almost two years ago to the time in 2020, when in an instant, thousands, millions of people lost their jobs because things changed all of a sudden in a way people couldn't foresee. Who's to say that won't happen again? A job is not a good source of security. It's not a guarantee. What if you say, well, I'm saving a bunch of money. I've created this space. I have this bank account. And so I have this money that will keep me secure, that I can rely on in moving forward. Again, money can be easily lost in one way or another. So we know we're in a time of inflation. Prices are going up. That money you save may not mean as much in times to come. The economy changes all the time. Expenses come up. Having that money does not keep you in a secure place. Maybe you think it's a particular relationship. Well, you know, I can rely on my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister. This aunt or uncle looks out for me. Maybe it's a special someone. Uh, My husband, my my wife, I I rely on them. They keep my life stable and secure. My boyfriend, my girlfriend, whatever it is. This person, that is my source of security. I'm, I'm not trying to be cruel or morbid, but here's the truth. Relationships always end one way or another. They either end when someone you know is no longer with us and dies, or they end by brokenness, a relationship falling apart. They are not eternal in this life. They do not last. And even then, relationships don't stay the same. They're not an even plateau that never changes. Relationships always change. Hopefully, it's you're growing to know someone better, but it changes. It's not the same when it starts. It's not a real good place to have stability. Well, the our way a relationship is now will always be like this. It won't. It will change. Hopefully for the better, but it will change. So what should be the anchor of our soul, only Jesus Christ. I don't know what else you think. This is what I need to grasp onto. But the truth is, it's only him that can hold us to God. And so if you want true peace, true hope, and true stability, I encourage you to turn to him. To turn away, reject sin and rebellion, turn to him in faith and trust. If you're not sure who he is, we'll get to know him in this book or talk to somebody who can share more about it take the time to get to know God, but you can know him today. You can reject sin and say, God, I want to know you. If you haven't done so, I would encourage you to do that. But for those of us here who do know God, believers in Christ, yes, we should be concerned about drifting away from God, but our greater trust should be in our anchor. Yes, we should fight against the sin which pushes us away. We should strive to get sin out of our lives, but more importantly, We should be inspired by the fact that we have this anchor, this hope that God will not let us go in Jesus Christ. I read this passage last week, but it's so appropriate even for this text as well. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Our good shepherd is also our secure anchor. And look, these are illustrations. God's not literally up there with a shepherd's crook. Jesus isn't literally shaped like an anchor. These are images for our mind to grasp. Whatever illustration you want to use, the point is the same. As Pastor Spurgeon said, our security depends far more on God's holding us than our holding on to him. Whether you want to think of him as a shepherd or or an anchor, it's not you holding, it's him holding on to you. It's in Jesus that we have more than just a mere belief, oh, I, I believe, I think God's going to take me to heaven. No, we have a real, true, guaranteed promise and hope it can be experienced even now. We've guarantee guarantee of why well, I know what's going to come when I take that last step, breathe that last breath. One pastor was writing about this passage, uh, F.B. Meyer. He made a contrast here between hope and faith. He's, he's not talking about like, uh, faith like saving trust in Christ. He's talking about like a belief, a, a thought, like I think this is going to happen. And so what he says is hope, true hope in Christ. That is something more than faith. Faith accepts and credits testimony. Yes, I I think Jesus can save me. Hope anticipates. I know I'm excited to go home. Faith says the fruit is good. Yes, Jesus can give me good things. Hope picks and eats. Faith is the bud. Hope blossom. Faith presents the check. Hope lays out the amount received. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not like I... I hope it's going to snow tomorrow or something like that. No, no, it is, it's not wishful thinking. It's grasping God's promises of eternal life. It's grasping that God is true and giving us true confidence. And we can have that confidence because of what Jesus has done. How can we have it? Well, if we look back in our passage at verses 19 and 20, it speaks of a curtain. It says that we have the sure, steadfast anchor of the soul. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Pastor, what in the world is is that talking about there? Well, Remember, this is the book called Hebrews. He's writing to Hebrew people, those who grew up practicing Judaism. And by talking about a curtain, their mind would go to their old tabernacle or, or temple, the place where God was to be worshiped. In that temple, there was a curtain, an actual veil in the temple that separated the most inner part, the innermost holy place from the rest of the temple. This curtain was the only way to get into that inner place. It was a veil of thick fabric that physically and symbolically separated a perfect God from his imperfect sinful people. It was a way of saying God his presence is in here. You're all out here, and you can't be that close to God. This is one artist's representation of how it would look when God was worshiped at a tent, a tabernacle, rather than a physical temple. But a big curtain separating that inner room there. In fact, only one person went in there. Only the high priest, the, the chief religious representative of the people, he only went in, and he only went in one day a year. He would offer a sacrifice, atone, pay for the sins of the people. When that high priest went in, the Hebrew people, to use what we are just talking about, they had faith that if the priest went in and offered the sacrifice, then we'll be good with God, our relationship with him will be restored. But they honestly didn't know what would happen. Maybe the priest would do something wrong and God would kill the priest. They had to wait and see if the priest came back to know that their offering was accepted. And this would happen every year. But now, something different. Now, for us, God's people, for these Hebrew people, Jesus is our high priest. He has gone behind that curtain, as our passage says. And now he's opened that veil to us, inviting us in. I was thinking about it uh, last night. Sometimes if it's at night and I'm out somewhere with my wife and daughter, when we get home, I'll often get out of the car first, and I'll go inside, I'll unlock, I'll open the door, I'll turn on some lights, and then I'll help them come inside the house. That's what Jesus has done for us. He has gone through that curtain, opened it up, and now he's bringing us in with him. Now we have access to God. And this happened because Jesus died to pay for our sins that separated us from God. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, he cried out with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit, he was dead. And behold, the curtain of the temple, that curtain we're talking about here, was torn in two from top to bottom. So the earth shook, rocks were split. When Jesus died, that veil torn apart so that people knew now we have access to God. This is a powerful picture of a restored relationship. Jesus went to God. His work brings us to be with him. We'll read later in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened up for us through that curtain, through his flesh, through his death, he's opened a way for us to have a relationship with God. To use the words of our passage, he is a forerunner, a pioneer, a first explorer of this uncharted territory. We've maybe tried our own way, but we got lost. But he went through this unmapped area. He has found where God is. And he's made a way for us to come to him. By bringing us to God, Jesus is now our high priest, our representative. This is the author. He's returning back to what he talked about before. And he's going to spend the next few chapters the next few sermons we have talking about what it means for Jesus to be our high priest. He's going to do that by looking at a historical figure named Melchizedek, comparing him to Jesus. So that's what's coming up, that's what that last part of our verse meant, but we're going to look at that in the weeks to come. For now, I really want to back up and just focus on that idea of Jesus being our anchor that has gone into the curtain that has gone to God's presence. There's a slight problem with that image though because Jesus is kind of a reverse anchor. An anchor is something you drop in the water that holds your ship there. But Jesus, he's gone up to heaven. It's more like a kite that kind of disappears up into the clouds. But unlike a kite that blows every which way, and eventually falls down, he is secure. And so this anchor, this kite has gone up. And when we die, he pulls us up to be with him. Or maybe think of it like a mountain. There's a mountain climber. you're climbing a mountain and Jesus is ahead of you and he climbs up. Maybe he climbs into a cloud and he lets a rope down. When we grab then he'll pull us up to be with God. Those are just some images. Whatever kind of fits there. That's what our author is doing. He's talking about anchor, all these other things. So we grasp the idea of what Christ has done for us. He's gone somewhere that we can't go, but one day he will bring us to be with him. We can't see where he is now. He's up in the cloud or, or down the sea, however you want to, want to think about it. We can't see where he is. But we can see the rope or we can't see the cord coming from the anchor. We can see, okay, I know he went there. I see what the, the way is. I see what he has done. And we know that someday he will pull us up to home. We know this because God has sworn, promised, guaranteed that this will happen. And for Christians, I think some of our our feelings that we have a despair, brokenness of hopelessness, if we struggle to think that things are going well in life, I think that comes because we forget that. We say, okay, I see that rope, that cord, but I'm not really sure where it goes. It, It kind of disappears. I don't know what happens after death. And that can lead to a feeling, a sense of hopelessness, being overwhelmed by the trials around us. But if we remember where Christ is, what he has done, then we can have hope. I came across this quote from a man named Thomas Brooks. He was a Puritan, lived a couple hundred years ago, but I thought these words were very wise. He says, consider Christian, uh, speaking to believers, all your trials and troubles, your calamities and miseries, your crosses and losses, all that which you meet with in this world, those are all the hell that you shall ever have. Here and now, you have your hell, the worst it could be, but hereafter, you shall have heaven. This is the worst of your condition. The best is yet to come. Now, that's not a hope in a political personality. That is hope in Christ. That's seeing that as bad as things would be now, that is the worst. Now, yes, your life may get a little worse tomorrow than it is today, but the point is that the worst you can experience is in this life now. If you know Christ, the best is ahead. And if we believe that, remember that, that can give us hope each day. Now, I know that for some, feelings of despair, hopelessness, maybe because of struggles with mental health, and perhaps there's other steps that need to be taken, other means to address it. But I think for most of us, most of us in our daily struggle of life, we need to remind ourselves of this anchor that has gone through the curtain of eternity and cling to that anchor. We do that by imitating the faith of Abraham and others who trusted in God's guaranteed promise. We remind ourselves, God has said I will be with him. Christ has done that for me. If I remember that, that gives me hope for today. So friends, let's let's stand together and let's sing a song to remind us of those truths and give praise to the one who went before us because he alone is worthy.